Hi, and welcome to the GX podcast, where we will be discussing today the impact of COVID-19 on healthcare consumerism. Um, today, we're going to try to explore some key themes like the acceleration or increase in demand for consumer solutions and discuss some of the new expectations due to the pandemic. Joining me today, I have Terilyn Romero, VP of Innovation at Cigna, Sandeepan Gangopadhyay, COO and President at Galaxy Solutions, and Chandra Dayamagudar, VP of our Hartford Innovation Center. Uh, thanks for joining me, guys. Chandra, let's just jump right in, um, talking about the shift in focus for payer innovations. What are you seeing out there? Thank you, uh, Talon, uh, for joining the podcast, and Sandeepan, thank you as well. Um, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, so, uh, Talon, quick question. Um, I know the the post-COVID, um, uh, what we're going through now is is exposing certain, um, you know, underlying um, the, the factors within the healthcare system, I think. Um, if you look at the, the last year, the McKenzie, the Health Insight study, um, they were predicting close to 34 to 35% um, um, of the population could potentially go into telehealth as an example. Just in the last couple of weeks, the, the Becker uh, Hospital Review is, 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 is forecasting that uh, more than 300% increase in the telehealth uh, in the remote uh, 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 telehealth medication. And I think that is you know, a significant um, change in how we provide care and, and access to the care, how uh, the, in the past, the convenience versus the personal relationship with the PCP used to be the theme. Now I think that some of the things are changing. Um, so what is, your, what is your take on some of the, the changes since the post-COVID? How do you think the payer industry in general uh, will impact and any innovation you think will be significant, um, you know, get a more traction than, than ever before. Uh, what are some of your thoughts? Yeah, thanks for the question. I think for the most part, um, you know, COVID is really um, accelerating innovation and directing focus in a couple of key areas. Uh, you mentioned virtual care. I'd add to that at-home care and remote monitoring really as the delivery system becomes hyper-focused on finding creative ways to care for patients outside of the hospital or clinical setting. Why? Because people are afraid uh, of getting the virus. And we're also cognizant of the need to do everything that we can to not overburden the system and our doctors with things that quite frankly, don't require an in-person visit in the middle of a pandemic. Now, telemedicine or virtual care um, it, it's been around for over two decades, um, but adoption, as you hinted at, um, has really seen a surge lately. Um, and before coronavirus, uh, adoption among Americans was actually relatively low. Um, before the pandemic, only one in 10 U.S. patients were even using telemedicine services. Um, fewer had probably even, even heard about it, so there was a, a really uh, strong lack of awareness um, that, of course, has changed. <laughs> now Trump gives uh, press conference briefings, and we hear about telemedicine all the time. Um, so we really do have an unprecedented uptick in demand and utilization, uh, which, is, which is great. Um, telemedicine companies 
are also, I think, stepping in, in, in new and exciting ways to kind of deliver that care. Um, you know, we're now seeing everything from uh, physical therapists to dentists uh, offering telemedicine. We're seeing an increase in behavioral health practitioners offering telemedicine. And all of that, of course, is having influence on the payer side on how we think about reimbursement and how we think about packaging those services so that individuals are not only um, you know, able to access that as part of their plan, but that they're aware of what they have at their fingertips. And I think we are seeing that trend. Um, but in general, any other uh, innovation you think potentially on the payer side uh, could impact um, in, in coming days or, or maybe come in the forefront uh, in coming days where in the past, um, you know, we we took some of these innovation as we go along, but I think it will come into the more forefront. Um, any, you know, any particular innovation on the payer side um, you think will play a significant role in the uh, healthcare ecosystem? Yeah, you know, um, I think more broadly, um, I'd probably answer that in two parts. Um, so first and foremost, I think really all different sectors of the delivery system right now, especially the payers, are looking for ways to quickly innovate around needs that have emerged uh, very specific to COVID-19. You know, we're now seeing um, a need for testing and tracking and protocols for keeping um, a safe work environment or for bringing people back to work. Um, from a para perspective, I think many employers in the market are actually looking to their health insurance carrier or health services provider and saying, what do I do, right? Because there's a lot of different information out there. I think for many um, employers and individuals, it can be not only confusing, but very overwhelming. So I think broadly what we're seeing is a quick reaction on the payer side, again, but not limited to just payers, on looking to the market to say, what do they need and how can we meet that need? And then coming up with innovative services and solutions around that. Um, the other way that I'd answer it in terms of innovation on the payer side, um, if you think about a lot of the big players in the country today, you know, it's the the Cigna's, the United Healthcare, the Aetna, the Humana, right? Uh, all of those big players, um, they, they are large entities uh, by nature. They've, they've become and, and grown quite sizable. And so when we think about innovation across corporations of that size, you know, typically, and I've got 20 years um, of experience in the industry, um, all in corporate healthcare, um, you know, but typically innovation moves um, at a bit slower clip compared to a startup or, you know, um, other types of industries as an example. And from an innovation perspective, what I'm seeing happen, and this is incredibly exciting, is we're getting a lot of kind of quote unquote wartime leadership, right? So decisions are being made quickly, boundaries are being pushed, um, hurdles are being cleared, and things that have never been done before or that might've taken a very long time to do, are now being done in a rapid manner in order to meet the market need. Um, so I know you're looking for specifics here, but I, I really have been um, noticing kind of the broad sweeping ways in which um, you know, innovation is happening 
just to make things happen, right? Um, to think differently and to change uh, the way that things are because we're finding that they're not working as we're in the middle of a pandemic and our cracks are becoming chasms. Thank you. No, no, I think this could be our, what we call the Amazon or Uber or Airbnb moment uh, <laughs> of the healthcare. I, I truly believe that. I think this will, this will turn that. And I think you already answered this question, but I think it probably goes without saying that you see a higher demand for consumer solutions um, and technology due to the pandemic. And it sounds like your answer to that would be a resounding yes. I, I think, uh, Tracy, you're right. Um, and it's, it's, you touched upon it, Carolyn, um, Sandeep in here. Uh, you know, as people move to work from home and they had to push the boundaries, like you're saying, um, and it, it wasn't just the sophisticated things like um, more advanced technology for people to work remotely in masses. Uh, we had to do, uh, and we know this from personal experience, uh, we uh, had to repurpose some of our staff to take on help desk operations to help some of uh, the employees work from home, you know. Um, mm -hmm. so a lot of different changes and a lot of decisions uh, got made typically in a wartime setting. And uh, along the way, um, while we are doing those aggressive things, uh, you know, one of the things that we are seeing is that uh, over the last few years, uh, some truly innovative approaches um, have been introduced. So, um, for example, in the last uh, few years, um, we have uh, been working uh, within the industry and uh, yourselves on uh, using, for example, uh, pricing models that learn the marketplace for, for example, drug prices in uh, cash, you know, discount card or cash card business. And um, in that model, we have uh, neural nets that have taken on what a finance team does and a pricing team does and do that work much more accurately and efficiently. Uh, you know, scan uh, the uh, prices so that we get the best price to the patient so that they are able to get the drug that they would otherwise uh, have not been able to afford. And um, solutions like that, new technologies that um, have been uh, introduced to the marketplace and are being tested, um, uh, do you see that that sort of uh, thing is going to take off now because uh, to Tracy's point, um, we need new solutions for consumers, uh, especially in uh, this kind of social distancing kind of setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and I think the, the interesting thing behind that question, because no one can predict the future, is of the things, that, you know, the innovations that are happening right now, which of those are going to sustain past the pandemic? And more importantly, how, how long is this pandemic going to last? You know, when are we going to get back to some semblance of, of something normal? And of course, what is, what is normal, right? Um, but I think the one thing that folks can agree on is that this will fundamentally change the healthcare industry. It's interesting times, to say the least. Um, it, and to your point, what's going to have that sticking power um, and you know how long are we going to to need some of these innovations and and changes and how long what what's going to be sustainable at the end of the day? Tracy, I would actually say um, that 
one, and this is Sandeep, and that I would uh, also uh, pose it, or it's a hypothesis, that uh, though the current circumstances are tragic, right, nothing short of tragic, but to Carolyn's point, some of these things are going, are here to stay. Some mm -hmm. of the changes, whether it's a higher degree of work from home or remote medicine, is here to stay. But the side effect of that is going to be that there are underserved communities today that are going to get better health care down the road. Uh, people who are in far-flung communities are, are places where they can't afford. Uh, you will have solutions for them coming out of this as a byproduct. Right, Carolyn? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I completely agree with that. And I want to hone in on the words that you said um, at the beginning of your statement, tragic, right? Because while I'm optimistic that that will be the outcome of our current situation, I don't think that it's without some degree of, of pain, right? And that, that's pain experienced by real individuals and real families, because I think the way that we get to that change, right, really looking at what's happening in rural communities, really looking at the drivers of social determinants of health and how that has a very real impact on someone's ability to not only afford care um, or food for that matter, but even to access basic care. Like we don't, we don't get to the, the seismic change that needs to happen without first feeling some pretty bad hurt, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what the pandemic is doing, um, I'll go back to a statement I said earlier. I think the, the pandemic is taking these cracks that we've had in the system, right? We've known that the, the most detrimental thing for, you know, for, for years now um, is your socioeconomic status, right? That actually determines your quality of life, how long you live, what things you um, end up ailing from. Um, we, we've known those things. And now because of the pandemic, there is a spotlight on those things in a way that we've really never seen before. Um, and it's not just at the individual level. We're seeing, you know, hospitals in rural areas really struggle um, in ways that they haven't before. Um, and so, yes, I think we get to those, uh, those positive changes. But again, I think it's not without some hurt in the near term. What are some of the new expectations um, you see from consumers um, in terms of preventative care versus sick care? And I, I think I pose that to kind of the, the team here. I don't necessarily have to force Tara Lynn to do all the talking here today, although she's really great at it. <laughs> now, to, to add to that, um, <clears throat> and I think imagine in terms of the preventive care versus the, or traditional sick care, right? Imagine if we, just before the COVID, if we had a technology, uh, whether we data gathering technology or, or any of the, the variable technologies that we call it, right? whether you were, you were Fitbit or any variable technologies, if those were, if we had an ability to gather data, whether to take the temperature, whether to take the respiratory uh, 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 monitoring, Imagine the monitoring and, and self-symptom checking, you know, all of those that come together could, I mean, these are some of the life-saving technologies that I think um, the post-COVID will expose uh, in how um, the, the data gathering uh, in the preventive care um, will change compared to a traditional sick care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, if I can add on to that, 
um, I think the health industry as a whole, right, has been predominantly and historically focused on sick care rather than wellness or preventive care uh, as a norm. And while I don't think anyone would disagree with the idea that a healthy lifestyle can prevent or even reverse many chronic diseases, the shift from sick care to preventive care is something that's relatively recent. Um, you know, it, it seems like it kind of gained traction as a topic in, in 2012. Now, it may have started far before then, um, but in terms of popularity and, and kind of getting headline attention, it seems like it was about 2012. From the consumer perspective, and within the system of quote-unquote sick care that we've had, I think there's really been a growing frustration with the fact that the U.S. as a country, you know, we pay more for medical care than any other country, yet we have unsustainable costs and poor outcomes and, um, you know, poor patient satisfaction, poor access, um, worsening health disparities, as we were just talking about. And all of those things really lead to a need for transformative change. And I think that that's the new expectation from consumers, right? Um, we heard in, the, in a recent uh, political poll, this was before coronavirus, but I imagine that the results would just be uh, further emphasized, that healthcare was the number one topic that they wanted to hear about from their political candidates and leaders. Um, and so from the consumer perspective, I, I think they are expecting us to fix this, right? This, this state of sick care but I don't think that they're saying that they want preventive care versus sick care. They're not thinking about it that way, right? Um, they just want it to work. Um, and so a prevention model really needs to kind of start coming to the forefront and changing our paradigms of how we think about disease and how we think about people and how we think about treating that. Um, if I can take a couple of moments just to share an analogy, um, you know, the system of sick care uh, if you think about it this way, it's really been focused on pulling people who fall into a river, right? Let's say there's, there's a river and you, you got people falling into it. That type of a system is completely worried and worried only about pulling people out of the river once they've fallen in, mm -hmm. right? We do everything we can to find a better and more effective way of getting people out of the river, right? We spend money on advanced technology and cranes and um, all kinds of things to get them out, uh, or reduce their time in the water. And then once we get them out of the river, we spend money on buying blankets and expensive heaters to keep them warm. Um, preventive care takes that mindset, mindset and instead shifts the thinking to say, why are people falling into the river in the first place? And how can we prevent that from happening so that we don't have to pull them out of the river later on? So in other words, how can we change the conditions that cause the person to fall into the river versus just pulling them out once they've fallen in. You're so right, Carolyn. In fact, uh, you know, one thing that uh, I remember is uh, in an interview, uh, Dave Cordani had been asked uh, that since, uh, you know, uh, Cigna operates in so many different countries, what is a key difference between the United States and elsewhere? And he he literally mentioned that uh, the fact that uh, in other countries uh, you folks see a lot more focus on preventive care. Uh, that's one big difference that then 
has uh, it, it's almost like a leading indicator, right? And it mm. uh, you know there is a cascaded effect of that. And uh, one of the things uh, from an innovation standpoint that uh, we are enjoying working on today is uh, with a few pairs, uh, they are looking at, again, the use of technology and innovation for more, uh, you know, preventive kind of situations where uh, the actuarial models for coverage uh, would be transformed. So in essence, uh, what would happen is uh, that once uh, a disease condition uh, is indicated, there are some leading indicators to a disease condition, uh, can we take a bet on that? Can we say, hey, mm. uh, a preventive care regime is actually going to be financially beneficial to mm-hmm. the entire ecosystem, not just the patient, but you know everybody else, the payer, the uh, physician, mm-hmm. the network, uh, you know, from holistically, uh, is it uh, going to be more economical to do something that's more preventive, that is something that is more aggressive in certain cases? Uh, sometimes it goes in a genetic, uh, you know, treatment kind of format as well. That is, uh, that is of course, uh, you know, not prevention, but uh, more aggressive methods for uh, transiting their, uh, you know, disease condition and their therapeutic journey. So, um, one of the things that we are beginning to see is the same model by which you can train networks to see patterns that we cannot see in the marketplace. Uh, For example, uh, one very interesting thing we saw in one of our uh, products that uh, many payers use is the capability to model, um, uh, you know, what is the impact of the pharmacy network to uh, the utilization of a specific therapy or a drug. And the network realized that, hey, uh, a particular pharmacy that sells um, cigarettes is heavily impactful for asthma medication. Now, it doesn't come like that. It just identified the pharmacy. And we were wondering, why would this pharmacy have such an impact on asthma medications until we realized that they sell cigarettes? And there is obviously some kind of, you know, so there are patterns that these uh, solutions and these new technologies recognize that we human beings simply can't, right? We are not looking for those signals and those patterns. So uh, in as much as some of these innovations can lead to uh, more advanced, um, not just uh, therapeutic models, but financial models where it makes financial Mm -hmm. sense to do something more preventative, don't you think? that the industry will change that much more aggressively? Oh my gosh, yes. You know, like anything, um, and I'm being a bit bit cheeky here, right? Um, Knowing the uh, current uh, view of of the healthcare industry, but you you gotta follow the money, right? And I think with preventive care, there's been a past stipulation or or, um, perception that preventive care is not profitable. Um, and the reality is within the current system, now this is changing for the better, by the way, um, but there's a lot of misaligned economic incentives, which have historically made it very hard to make the shift to preventive care, right? Um, when, when surgeries are more profitable than primary care, um, you have a problem. When acute care is more profitable than things that never happen, um, you have a problem. Um, and so I do think, you know, the statement that you said beneficial for all is really important here. We have to get to some 
aligned incentives for preventive care to really be viable. Um, and I do think we're headed in that direction. The other thing that you mentioned that I, that, um, I think is really spot on um, and, and is a trend that's not only happening now, but I think is also the wave of the future, is the ability for us to lean on technology and big data and AI to basically augment human intelligence and human capability to do things that we simply cannot do in terms of looking at patterns and using those patterns to make smart insights that help inform strategy or better models. Um, that's, that's very exciting as technology advances and seeing all the different facets and ways that it's really inserting value into a system that quite frankly, um, you know, can, can benefit from, from taking all of that big data um, and sourcing it in a way that maybe we haven't before. Yeah, absolutely, Tyler. And to add to uh, that and, and the points and Deepan made earlier, bringing those technologies um, in, the, in the access to the care. Um, and over time, whether it's the providers, the payers, and the other, uh, the, the parties within the ecosystem, we, there's a lot of data. I, I think in the mm -hmm. future that, you know, collecting all of the data and giving that, the, the power of the data to, to a member, to him or her, to manage their own data. I think, I know CMS has lately opened up a lot of the, the, the obstacles to, um, to bring that, the, the interoperability issues that we had in the past with the EHR and the member uh, patient health information. And I think clearing some of the roadblocks, CMS is paving the way, um, giving a more power, the data power, uh, into the hand of the member and the patients. Uh, and I think I absolutely agree with both of you guys that the technology, um, the way we do business today, I think will change. Um, mm -hmm. The access to the care, the, the, the value-based care, uh, providing better incentives uh, for our members to take care of their health. Uh, and designing, to tell and to your point, designing the product to incentivize those behaviors uh, will be the key in the in the coming days. Um, I think that will drive the, um, the the subsequent innovation in the back end, whether it's the data technology uh, and all of the system and application that provide these services to make that um, the life better for our our members. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, one thing, uh, if I can just add on to that and, and build on, on what you were saying, Chandra, um, when we think about providing, you know, data to, to individuals, I think something really important to keep in mind is that at the end of the day, um, people don't necessarily want to change their lifestyle, right? Um, I have a dad, he's got um, diabetes. Um, and, you know, he's been told all the things he needs to do and given all the data on why it is that he should change his eating habits, stop going out for hamburgers, stop ordering in pizza, you know, stop with the, with the cherry pies. Um, and he simply is unable to make a sustainable change in his life. And so, um, you know, that's a, a real hurdle, I think, that we face as an industry and we look at data and say, how can we use data to kind of improve outcomes or improve an individual's quality of life and health? I think we have to get around the notion that, that data alone is going to cause someone to adjust, adjust their lifestyle. I think what's more realistic is if we can figure out ways to use 
data and complement with technology to kind of take the thinking out of it and maybe help people understand in real time how what they're doing is impacting their risk level. Um, you know, maybe then we'll, we'll start to see some change, but I, th I think we, we have to get away from the expectation that, that people are just going to do and behave differently um, if presented with the right facts, because historically we've seen that that's not the case. Having said that, one of the questions I have, and you kind of brushed upon it, is how do you expect behaviors to change going forward? Uh, you know, what what do we expect to to change? If it's not avoiding that apple pie, which I understand, I'm right there with them. Um, what other what changes <laughs> in behavior do you expect to see? Yeah, in, in light of uh, in light of coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, if I can answer this in two parts, maybe at a macro level from the industry perspective and then at an individual level, um, if, if we look back at the, the Spanish flu, right, which was about 100 years ago, claimed at least 50 million lives or 2.5% of the global population based on current estimates, um, we, we see that public health measure, measures back then, um, especially social distancing, things like quarantine, which we're all experiencing right now, mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they weren't implemented on time. Um, and because the flu was really not a, a reportable disease in 1918, um, there were a lot of cases that, you know, never were captured or went, went unreported. Um, and so there was a kind of a, a broad failure um, in the ability of healthcare professionals uh, to, to see the pandemic coming or to see the scale to which it was kind of sweeping over, um, you know, the people. As a result of that, um, what happened kind of coming out of that pandemic is we saw many governments kind of across the globe shift their thinking um, and their behavior on, on healthcare, right? They started moving towards the idea of socialized medicine, you know, healthcare for all and, and it's free. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the U.S., uh, many countries like Russia, Germany, France, um, even the U.K., um, kind of all went that that path. Um, the U.S. coming out of that particular pandemic really took on, took a different route. Um, and we went an employer based route, um, which we're now seeing kind of some of the some of the challenges with that. Right. Especially as, um, you know, 30 million people are now on unemployment. Um, but, but bottom line, really kind of regardless of whether they want socialized or not, um, you know, the, the biggest change at the industry level, behavior change, was really um, to consolidate healthcare and then expand access to it. Um, as I think about coronavirus and how that will continue to, to shift and change um, for us here in America, um, you know, I think we'll see change in, in how we think about care models and triage, um, how we leverage technology and AI to do things that people used to do. We were just kind of touching on some of this um, in the recent conversation. Um, and, and how we alleviate the, the probability of bottlenecks, right? So that only the most complex and severe cases get the attention that they need and people aren't kind of flooding the system with things that quite frankly could be handled at home um, or that maybe require kind of a lower modality type of interaction. Um, I think we'll reimagine at home care, especially if we see this pandemic and the quarantine playing out for a while. 
um, both in terms of how that's delivered and how it's packaged, but also how it's reimbursed. Um, going back to misaligned economic uh, incentives, we have misaligned incentives right now between you know, at-home care and facility care. Um, you know, the delivery system gets paid more if you go into a facility versus if you're getting care at home. But data shows us that care at home actually produces better outcomes. People recover more quickly. Um, and, you know, we may even see an entire shift across the model, um, similar to what uh, many countries did coming out of the Spanish flu, to a more socialized system. Um, and then at the individual level, I think some of the behavior changes that we're seeing right now, and which I do think will prolong for some period of time, is first and foremost, um, fear, right? Fear is factoring in to people's lives in so many ways, and, and their health is no exception to that, right? They are afraid to go into the doctor's office. They're afraid to go into the ER. So they are delaying their care, whether it's cancer treatments, dental appointments, scans. I mean, you name it, and it's just kind of sitting idle right now. Um, I imagine that that fear will continue until there's a vaccine or we have nationwide testing uh, mm -hmm. to ease that fear. And then cost sensitivity. Um, from an industry perspective, we've really struggled with affordability for a very long time now. Um, the, the, the unknown <laughs> um, surprises that factor in when you go to the doctor's office or when you have to have a, an elective surgery or go into the hospital, you know, those things were already before the pandemic um, causing behavior changes in individuals. Again, delaying care, right? Because they, they didn't want to go in and receive mm -hmm. a big surprise bill and feel like they were out of pocket. When you combine that with the fact that 30 million people um, are currently unemployed and worried about their financial vitality, this just becomes compounded in a way that I think we've not seen before, right? So not only are people not out shopping and doing the things that they would normally do, um, you know, but they're, they're going to start looking at their care differently and the cost of care, and they're going to start making some pretty scary trade-offs. Mm, and I think the whole thing that you, we've kind of been circling around, which is um, really, I hate this term, but it's what's the new normal. What's the new normal mm. going to look like for us? Um, we kind of, uh, and maybe I'll flip this to Chandra, we talked a little bit about the difference between personalized and predictive or proactive care. Um, and we've kind of talked, uh, you know, talked a lot about innovations in patient engagement, um, virtual care and telemedicine. Um, what, if any, um, do we see are going to help um, shrink those chasms that you've seen back to, to and, and assist us in the, in the, the new normal, if you will. And to, to, to add to that, what Ellen said earlier, uh, Tracy, that, you know, the, when we've seen that, and we are working with a couple of pairs today, um, that looking at the data, looking at the big data and, and slicing and dicing some of the data, we were able to connect certain patterns. Uh, we were able to say, for example, um, in one of the case study, uh, we were able to connect the, the, the social determinant of health, the quality of the care uh, through certain zip codes. Um, the certain, uh, the disease management uh, and the quality of the care uh, is different uh, depending on the zip code. 
for certain pairs, some of the case studies we have done. So we see the pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and because uh, we are slicing and dicing data, we're able to connect the dots. Um, and, 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 and we haven't done that yet, but diving deep uh, potentially may even reveal uh, the, the quality of the care uh, is directly connected to some of the, some of the, uh, the factors such as access to the care, right? and the cost effectiveness of these cares, whether Ethelin uh, brought up a great point, um, providing incentives uh, in our current ecosystem uh, is, is, uh, is not balanced, right? Mm. We provide um, our benefits a little bit different, um, networks are set up a little bit different for a, a inpatient care through the outpatient care, right? Um, so I think some of those, those parities will continue to drive some of the innovation in the back end, whether it's the technology, um, whether it's the, uh, 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 some of the processes that both the provider and payer to follow, follow today, I think those will change in coming days. Mm -hmm. It sounds like in, in, we're at least getting to the point where we're identifying um, some of the problems, what the solution is, is remains to be seen, but we're moving in the right direction. Um, one of the uh, kind of the closing questions I have, and again, we've touched upon this, uh, Terilyn, I think you mentioned it earlier, was the social determinants of health um, in the impact in a post-COVID-19 era. Um, so how do, we, how do we see that is um, going to change? And that's, again, I guess to the group. Maybe, maybe Sandy Pin has a, a thought on that. Yeah, I think uh, the primary impact uh, is going to be uh, and, and, and I think Tarlin touched upon something that there is what we are going through now. And then in the near term, uh, a lot of us have some level of trauma, right? Um, especially in the Northeast, uh, New York, New Jersey area, some of the other states that have seen a significant impact. Uh, how people interact, uh, people will be worried shaking hands, for example, right? Some things, when you talk about the new normal, uh, there, in the near term, there is going to be some change in how we interact socially. But in the long term, in terms of uh, the uh, habit, uh, you know, that will transform over time and socially how uh, these uh, habits will enforce and bring in a change is where we as uh, uh, professionals in the healthcare area can strategize how to um, uh, put forward uh, models and propose through social media new uh, memes or new uh, habits uh, that will result in better behaviors for a better healthcare. And uh, that's uh, uh, you know, a, a concept where we are saying a lot of things happen uh, socially, uh, even for example, uh, certain memes resulted in all uh, kind of paper products disappearing from the shelf, right? So these kind of uh, social networks and um, uh, social um, uh, ideas have a lot of power. Uh, the idea is uh, what if we could use some of those to result in better behavior? Suppose coming out of this, if uh, it is, um, you know, we encourage people to reach out more proactively for preventive health uh, actions rather than wait until they're sick and they're going to see a doctor because they need to get, uh, you know, a, a treatment. Uh, or uh, we, um, you know, people are incredibly um, missing people who are used to going to gyms, for example. 
uh, are missing uh, that entire part of their lives and uh, any kind of solutions that we can propose from a, a social media or a meme standpoint to um, uh, that will result in better uh, habits uh, for uh, general uh, people not just people involved in healthcare uh, but for people around the world is all going to result in a better outcome uh, tarlin any uh, you know do you see some of that happening uh, around you and uh, uh, around not only the company but uh, both the industry and outside of the industry as well i do um and, and that certainly resonates um and in fact something uh, chandra said um a, a little bit earlier around the zip codes and using the data um mm -hmm. to look at the the zip code discrepancies when it comes to health um from a social de social determinants of health perspective you know if there was anyone uh in today's current industry that doubted for a minute that 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 social determinants have an impact on one's health and overall outcomes and quite frankly quality of life I think what we're watching unfold in real time with COVID-19 is going to to make believers out of them that that it does matter and in fact it's one of the biggest things that matters. Um, you know what you just hit on I think is is so much of the you know the, the types of things that contribute to an individual's overall well-being, sense of community and happiness, right? These these things are so important. We're not just you know, vessels of, of organs where, you know, souls and we've, we, you know, we've, we have a lot of complex needs and all of those things factor in. Um, I think one of the things that Americans are seeing play out in, um, in very real time uh, on the news these days, you know, whether or not they're tying it to social determinants of health, I don't know, um, but it certainly is, um, is, is food insecurity. And food insecurity is both uncertainty about being able to buy food when you run out and having to cut back on the size of meals. Um, or in you know, really extreme cases, having to skip a whole day's worth of food um, because you either don't have access or can't aff afford it, right? Um, this is happening in real time. Um, and these types of issues affect poor minorities far more than white middle class. Um, again, when you combine this with the fact that people are no longer able to eat out at restaurants or maybe even leave their home, uh, you have a real crisis on your hands. And COVID-19 and the pandemic that we're all living through has really exasperated this problem on a number of levels. Um, just uh, the last week of, of March, um, I had seen a, a, a study come out. It said 38% of U.S. respondents reported moderate to high levels of food insecurity. And then I saw another survey that said, you know, they had talked to 10,000 people uh, across the U.S. And what they found was that four in 10 had little to eat um, or difficulty obtaining healthy foods. Um, and, you know, I'm triangulating on kind of one very specific thing. Um, but I think many people, you know, listening to this podcast will hear this and say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this in the news, um, or maybe I'm dealing with it personally. Um, you know, food pantries and feeding programs are having a difficult time meeting increased demand. Um, restaurants and other businesses are closed and unable to pick up the slack. And that is disrupting the supply chain. Um, you know, farmers are producing food that has nowhere to go. Um, mm -hmm. I think we're all hearing about food waste, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, this is, again, this is just one social determinant of health, um, but it's seen a spotlight lately. And so again, when I think of what comes out of COVID-19, I think it, you know, it's one, the realization that this stuff matters and it matters in a big way. And then two, um, you know, I, I think I, I, I keep hearing sound bites all over the place that say, you know, the, this virus doesn't know borders and it doesn't um, discriminate. But I think at the end of the day, when we start boiling down, like who really got sick, which communities really suffered and what was the death prevalence rate? Mm -hmm. I think what we're going to find is something quite, quite contrary to that, which is, gosh, you know, it, it's based on your zip code. Um, or, you know, the, the community that you live in. Um, and it's all going to boil down to those social determinants of health. And I think that insight that we're going to collectively have as a country is going to create that paradigm shift that's needed to say, if we want to really reduce costs overall and have a healthier, more productive population overall, we got to start with the very basics. What do people need to live? Do they need access to the gym? Yeah, we want to make sure that they're, you know, if they can't get to a gym, they're able to get outside, that they have community and loved ones and people that they can talk to and enjoy things with. Mm -hmm. And that, hey, they also, you know, they need food and they need access to that food. They need access to primary care. And that's where things like virtual care come into play. So social determinants of health is really, I think, at the root and it's the baseline for, for meaningful change at a very macro level for the citizens of this country. I think also this goes back to some of the things that we talked about earlier, that the positive byproduct of this, as Charlene, you said, is that it's making it no longer up for dispute. It's no longer up for um, any kind of discussion. It's very clear that if we have to hit better marks, if we have to hold ourselves as a country to a higher um, degree of acceptability in terms of how we are, how healthy we all are, mm. uh, you know, the 80-20 rule, right? This is, uh, you know, this is, this is what we need to go after first. And I think um, uh, everything else that we have talked about, whether it is remote medicine to your point or uh, from a healthcare standpoint, and then beyond healthcare, like you're saying, even food and some basic amenities, uh, shelter, uh, safety, security, right? Safety is also in some of these, uh, you know, underserved uh, communities. Uh, safety is an issue. Uh, all of those things uh, holistically need to be addressed. But uh, from a healthcare standpoint, especially, uh, I think uh, technology and innovation can play a big role. Uh, if it's properly coupled with the social media and, you know, the social aspects of it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and the, Sandeep, and the adoption of those uh, technology changes, you know, the, the, the adoption was slower, I think, in the past, um, especially in the healthcare. I think Theralyn brought up the point, healthcare was the last one to adopt some mm -hmm. of these changes. I think this will kind of push all of us over um, to adopt these technology innovation very quickly in a, in a war footing uh, uh, manner um, and either you change or, you know, things will change you. Yeah, well said. And I think um, what I'm hearing today from, from these three experts here is um, it's a big, it's a big problem. There's a lot of moving parts 
Um, and we've, we've really just touched really briefly on some of the high points. I think we could probably do a session in and of itself of, a, of the social determinants. I think there's, Tara Lynn brings up a lot of good points that we could uh, certainly dig into. Um, but um, I think we've kind of reached a, a great, um, almost full circle coming back with our discussion. Um, so I really appreciate everyone's time today um, and your insights. This has been, for me, very um, personally educational. So I appreciate your insights. Um, and uh, I look forward to, to more calls and more, more discussion on this topic with each of you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you all.